Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures. Connect with students from around the world and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, hello and welcome along to the programme. I'm Justin Briley and today on The Profile, I'm really pleased to be joined by theologian Robert Beckford. Uh, He's most recently presented a TV programme on the battle for Christianity on BBC. But uh, he's well known in his own right as a theologian and author, uh, particularly working in the area of black theology and culture and Christianity. So it's a real treat to have Robert join me for The Profile this afternoon. Uh, Don't forget you can find more interviews with uh, Christians in all walks of life, uh, especially theology. We often do theologians of one kind or another. Uh, if you want to find out more, go to premierchristianity.com slash free sample to get yourself a free sample copy of the magazine. Um, Robert, welcome along to the programme today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on the show. It's great to have you. Um, Robert, we like to start at the beginning on the profile. Um, you grew up, I understand, in Northampton, which kind of makes a connection between us because I'm also from that part of the world. Um, do you want to tell us about life growing up and, and your influences? Yeah, that's right. I was born in Northampton and lived for the first eight years of my life down the road in Wellingborough. There was a sizable African-Caribbean community, a lot of the Jamaican diaspora, who ended up in Northampton because of the old shoe industry. It's still mm. going a little bit, the old cobbler yep. industry. So my father's brother made the journey in the 1950s and then invited lots of his family members to come over. My father was one of them and my mother came Um, Not with my father because they got married in Britain, but she came via a similar kind of connection. Life there was blissful because it was a small town, small market town. Mm -hmm. It was in the 1970s that I was growing up there and... At those those days, I feel quite old saying that now, there were fewer cars on the road, which meant you could play football all day and all night without worry of cars coming down the road. Also, I remember being six years old and walking about a mile every day to school. And I don't think that would happen today, that you'd let a six-year-old cross two main roads and walk a mile to (laughs) school. Also, luckily, at the end of my road, there was a a, a large park and field. So we used to spend a lot of time when we weren't in church or at home mm. just playing games in the field. So it was really quite idyllic yeah. the first eight years. Then it all went wrong. Oh. We moved to Coventry, the big city, <laughs> the big smoke. My, my father thought that the future was in the car industry. Little did he know that by 1973 there'd be an economic downturn and mm. the car industry would collapse and would enter a post-industrial phase in Britain. But he thought that Coventry and the cities were the place to go. So we actually moved to Coventry when I was eight or nine and life was very different. I, I became Streetwise and very urban, mm. I would say, in contrast to being a country boy from Northampton <laughs> in my early years. W- was there a sort of black church community that you were part of both in your time in Northampton and, and in Coventry? Yes, there was. My mother pioneered two churches during her lifetime. The first one was in Wellingborough. We were originally part of what was known as the Pilgrim Holiness Church Movement, which mm-hmm. was a charismatic African-Caribbean church tradition, which eventually joined up with the Wesleyan Methodist and became the Wesleyan Church. Mm. But my mother helped to establish the church in Wellingborough and Northampton, and then she did the same thing when we moved to Coventry. So my mother was a real church planter, very dynamic, very articulate, and very committed woman of God who basically steered us all towards church and things of church for the first 18 or 19 years that we were at home. Sounds like she was a pretty influential character in your own Christian journey then. Oh, completely. But my mother and father complimented each other because my mother was a person of faith. My dad was slightly more 
political. Mm -hmm. He was a trade unionist. Yeah. And although he went to church in his later years, there was always a tension in my household between the things of faith and the things of politics. Right. So I ended up <laughs> merging the two eventually by becoming a political theologian. So I like to think that my dad gave me a sense of the way in which you go about changing the world practically. And my mother provided me with the kind of inspirational tools that you need to ensure that you are motivated and connected and have the right kind of spirituality to make those changes possible and long-lasting. How important was it, would you say, for your parents and you and the community who gathered to sort of have that identity, that shared identity that, that would have come out of that church community? Oh, it was vitally important because churches and migrant churches, immigrant churches, are not just places of worship, they're also community centres. And mm. this was true back in the 1970s, it's true also today. If you come, go to a country and you're looking to find your people, you go to a religious institution, you get fed spiritually, but you also make contact with other people who can help you find shelter or work. And that's what we grew up with, the church as a real institution. It provided... Um, help and support for Caribbean immigrants who were who were struggling to work out their place and space within within post-war Britain. So the church was fundamental to our existence. I, I often think that not enough is made of the way in which the church helped knit together black communities from the Caribbean in the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s. There's lots of research material in terms mm. of books, but I don't think visual media or print media has really done justice to how much work was done to empower and resource people who uh, found themselves as travellers in a strange land. Mm. I mean, people do sometimes today um, bemoan the fact that, in a sense, uh, churches can often be split down lines of colour. Um, and I think it was, was it Martin Luther King who said uh, of mm. America that Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America and so on. I mean, but, but then at the same time, what I'm hearing from you is having that shared identity, that cultural aspect to the church community for an, you know, an immigrant population was in its own way quite helpful. Is that oh fair? yeah, completely. I think yeah, that completely. I think there's there is a place for churches that cater to a particular ethnic group. Mm. But what we know from our sociological friends and our friends who teach cultural studies is that identities change. Yeah. People change. Yeah. So the African Caribbean community 40 years ago is very different to the community today. It's much mm. more diverse, much more hybrid in terms of its identity, and much more English to yes. be quite honest. So the key issue for ch all churches is how to ensure that their worshipping spaces are inclusive and that's the challenge because church often means tradition and tradition means fixity and fixing things and not changing them when it should actually mean the opposite it should be about freedom and fluidity and a space where all people can find refuge mm. now in order to do that you've got to have a cultural centre that is for want of a better word cosmopolitan one that can absorb and engage with diverse cultures diverse histories and I would say that there are very few people who are skilled at doing that kind of cultural work in church often it's a case of either or and I think that's the way we've ended up in Britain there are very few places where you get that kind of inclusivity at every level not just in the congregation mm. but also in leadership that's yeah. the holy grail to a degree of church life having inclusion from the top to the bottom yeah and do you think we are starting to see more integrated churches in that sense uh, i know that um the black church just as much as you know to use the phrase a white church has has an issue with second and third generation um young people who maybe are struggling to see what the the relevance is anymore of church to their life oh completely the statistics that we worked with a few years ago that came out of a bbc poll demonstrated that the number of African-Caribbean people or people of African-Caribbean heritage going to church had shrunk mm. from something like 80% 20 years ago to now down below 40, well, in the 40s. Mm. It, it was quite different in the African, West African church community where roughly about 80% of the people had some connection with a church community. So, yeah, I, I think there is a issue, uh, if not a crisis, mm. for all churches in terms of engaging with the next generation and making faith relevant and finding ways in which you can do church that appeal to people. I think what may be different in terms of the African-Caribbean community is that some research has demonstrated that men in particular 
are more likely to find Islam as a more mm. receptive and empowering faith than Christianity. So that's an interesting dynamic that the church has to engage with. But there is a struggle across Britain. There is a battle, to quote the phrase mm. of the programme, to make Christianity relevant and dynamic. But it can be done. And I think the point that you've raised about culture is vital. If cultures have changed and are much more inclusive, Saturday night when people go raving, it's quite inclusive, quite dynamic. <laughs> what we have to do is switch Saturday and Sunday and make Sunday night inclusivity take the place of the divisions that we face on Sunday. And mm. you can only do that by creating a culture like street culture, like dance culture, that's quite dynamic and inclusive and that speaks to a multiplicity of people. Mm. We'll come back to talking about the battle for Christianity, but I just wanted to kind of take us a bit further in your own story. Um, I understand it was an RE teacher who really ignited your love of theology. Do you want to tell us about that? that that's right. I had I went to an inner city comprehensive school. It wasn't as bad as that sounds because it was a former girls' grammar school, <laughs> which meant that most of the teachers were schooled in the old grammar school way, so they made sure that discipline was very mm. important, homework was important, and also having high expectations of, of children from all ethnicities was also very important. There was, it just seemed to be more opportunity then than I feel often I hear other children, including my own children, talk about. But So there's a sense that you could achieve anything. There was a, a you know, British equivalent of the American dream, I think, in the 1980s, uh, yeah. well, uh, 70s, 80s, partly because you didn't have to pay for your, your degree course so you could dream <laughs> a bit more of life without debt. But yeah. I had a fantastic RE teacher, Mrs Jewell, and another one called Mrs Delgano. And what they did was make religion a current affairs issue mm. so we didn't study it in isolation we didn't look at judaism and say isn't that an interesting religious system we looked at judaism in relation to the palestinian israeli conflict we didn't just look at moral issues like drug taking or substance abuse isolated from the economic conditions that caused young people to get involved in the drugs trade so there was this brilliant ability that they had to connect faith religion, with popular culture, with social justice, which meant that religion wasn't just a private affair or something that you studied outside of the historical and social world. It was the opposite. It was something that was fundamental to interpreting the way in which the world worked. And that really appealed to me mm. as a 13, 14-year-old. So I, I made sure that I took an O-level and an A-level RE just because of the passion that I had from home in terms of taking faith seriously, but then also meeting these really creative, really dynamic teachers who made me aware of the fact that faith was social, political, cultural, and that you had to make all of those connections to do theology in a meaningful way. You obviously had this unique combination of your mum and dad, kind of which propelled you in the direction of finding this interest in in the the political side of theology. What, what was they generally? Um, w w were you encouraged by the church community, or or is there any kind of I don't know a wariness of academic theology within the black church community? Oh yeah, I think it's a really good question. I, I would say I was quite fortunate because I was able to avoid two powerful forces within the church that depoliticize people. Mm. The first one was just not seeing book learning as being fundamental to ministry. And I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just that within Pentecostal church traditions, the call to preach and teach comes from God. And some people go to Bible college. Some people will have an apprenticeship. But generally, there isn't a strong tradition of using the western way of knowing about god in mm. order to know god so people will know god through reading the bible prayer personal devotion communal worship rather than feeling that they need to go and read um church dogmatics sure. by Karl Barth. you know they just don't <laughs> don't see those two as be that being net fundamental to ministering to people yeah i was luckily lucky to have RE teachers who said no you need to do that kind of work but also growing up in the 1970s particularly the late 1970s there was incredible political strife out on the streets in, in all urban centres mm. economic decline Margaret Thatcher pop culture the music the politics was all quite fractious and as a consequence you, you know you had to be not, not spiritually blind you had to be dead physically mm, not mm, to be engaged mm. with what was happening on your doorstep so I grew up with friends who were part of political groups musical groups cultural groups which were engaged in social and political activity and that drew me again you know um, drew me out of 
the church context and made me realize I needed to engage with these particular issues. And people of my age group from my background will know about the rise of Rastafari Mm. and the impact that that had on African Caribbean communities in terms of providing an alternative spirituality for many young black people, particularly young black men. So I realized that I had to find a way of making my faith relevant to the social and political world, cultural movements like Rastafari, and not dismiss them, but find ways in which I could incorporate them into my own spirituality and my own practice. And that was important, finding a point of correlation and connection rather than simply seeing it as a case of either or. I mean, one of your best known books, or the one that at least introduced me to your work, was Jesus is Dread. And that does feature a Rastafarian looking Jesus on the Mm. cover. But the book is fundamentally about the, the black church community and ethnic minority communities needing to kind of appropriate theology for themselves in ways that aren't Mm. simply sort of shaped by a kind of western white kind of theology so so what i mean what some people might say well theology is theology surely why does does why do we need these kind of cultural forms of theology what what's your response i would say that's that's a really ignorant position to begin with because Mm. we know that the biblical text itself is quite diverse and has competing groups writing about history and writing about God. We have three gospels four um, uh, four gospels with different perspectives on Jesus that we have a proliferation Mm. of church traditions in terms of how people read the Bible and express their their faith in light of that. So it's one of the strengths of Christianity is diversity And, and also it's on one level the fact that people don't disagree is a good thing because it provides an opportunity for what is central to Christianity which is reconciliation. So for me I've always thought it important to work with the African Caribbean Christian tradition and and more broadly the African diaspora tradition which incorporates Christianity in North America and the African continent in order to understand that tradition but also place it in dialogue with and at times a critique of other theological traditions. So to put that simply Mm. what I try and do is look at how Caribbean people, Caribbean people in Britain, in North America have understood Christianity. And how is that similar to, but also dissimilar to, what's happened in Euro Christian Christian traditions in Britain and also in North America? And then how do we reconcile the two? And it's fundamentally important because the big issue that we haven't resolved in Christian theology in North America and in Britain is slavery Mm. and the way in which Christianity was on the one hand complicit with slavery but also on the other hand part of the traditions that attempted to eradicate slavery and racialized oppression. I always often joke with my students you know when you're teaching you've always got to have a trick up your sleeve if you if you, you need a bit of a rest so I often say to, to students in one course go to the library and find out how many books you can discover written by English theologians on animals, on animal theology, a thriving discipline. Mm. They come back 20 minutes later and say, we found 40 or 50 books by these various authors. Then I say, go and find how many books you, go and see how many books you can find by English Christian theologians on race, on dealing with Christianity's 500-year sojourn with racialized oppression. And they come back uh, 20 minutes later and say, we found two. Yeah. So I then say to them, well, you know, I'd like to think that my, my pet dagoos and fish make it to heaven and that animals do have souls. That's important because it's all part of realizing that we're all connected by, to the divine and maybe we are abusing animals. But I'm sure that God's going to have something to say to a guild that write more about animals than dealing with human affairs and particularly, you know, Holocaust issues within Mm. the Caribbean that concern Christianity. So I think we haven't worked it out at the level of theology and as a consequence of that it has impacts on our inability to find ways of reconciling in a meaningful way ethnic divisions and tensions in the social Mm. world from the base of the church. Let's talk about the the, the recent TV programme that you presented, The Battle for Christianity. Um, So what kind of a battle is going on and who's winning it, Robert? Well, well, the battle is for the soul of the nation. It is how Christianity can be relevant to a post-Christian demographic who are not interested in church, who are interested in personal forms of spirituality, no spirituality at all. And how do they do that from a context where in many churches it's an ageing population that have to do the outreach work? That That's one battle. Mm. The other battle is... 
amongst the churches that are doing incredibly well. There are churches that have bucked the trend. There were Anglican churches, Holy Trinity Brompton, Evangelical Pentecostal churches like Hillsong, um, indi- uh, um, specifically ethnic churches like the um, Redeemed Church of God, who are doing incredibly well and have bucked the trend. But what we're intrigued with in, with those churches is how they then engage with a rising liberalism mm. in terms of morality amongst young people and the British population as a whole. So whereas 30 years ago, we know that most people in Britain were against homosexual marriage. You know, now the statistics show that the vast majority of people are quite happy for homosexual marriage to take place. Well, so we look at the battle then amongst these churches to engage with an audience a populace who have a very different morality. And what we find is quite intriguing. It's quite contradictory in that despite the churches that are doing well have a conservative or biblical-based morality, they're doing incredibly well despite the changes out there, which suggests that they are winning. They are winning people who want a particular framework to live their lives by, a particular set of values that they want to follow, and a, and a, and a distinctive community that they want to be a part of. So it's the mega churches, the mm. evangelical churches, the Pentecostal charismatic churches, which are heavy on dynamic worship and very focused on their morality, which seem to have the winning combination for bucking the trend. It, it, it is a very interesting thing because very often what we're told by um, people, um, both within and outside the churches, it's only when the church kind of catches up with modern society and its values around sexuality abortion and and all of that that the church will be deemed relevant and people want to go back but you're kind of seeing the opposite it's the churches which are actually kind of holding to a a more traditional kind of christian ethic on those issues that um seem to be actually growing it growing numerically so so it is an odd thing yeah it is an odd thing but it's really quite complex because Mm. although they're called conservative or traditional they're really not. I think a better description is that they're biblical mm-hmm. because while they might be conservative on family morality, they're quite radical when it comes to issues of social justice. Mm. And this is why the church often gets in trouble when it engages in politics because they're seen as either being hyper-conservative or being you know, leftist and crazy. Yeah. But instead, what they're actually doing is standing upon biblical principles in terms of how they see it. They believe in a God who mm. promotes a particular sense of community and family, but also a God who's just. So they, they're going to speak out against so injustice. The, the so. church that that's, does maybe have a more conservative, let's say, um, theology on gay marriage, for instance, is, is quite likely also to be running a food bank and doing the job centre and whatever on its that's premises. That's it. That's it. And I think that's what makes these churches more biblically based than just being conservative with a small C. Although I'm quite critical in that documentary about the kind of social justice work that they're doing, because often it's better understood as social welfare, meeting needs of local communities, whereas social justice implies structural critique and structural engagement. Mm. So on the food bank issue, churches that are involved in welfare feed the people people involved in social justice are doing advocacy work and saying to the government why are you cutting these uh, benefits or why are you ensuring that why aren't you ensuring that these provisions are being met and we need to work out ways in which we ensure that you do your job as a government so it's a slightly different dynamic at work that distinguishes social justice from social welfare so in the film i kind of have a admiration for the welfare work but also steer the audience in the direction of social Mm. justice which Mm. is a more sustained structural critique of systems and government how would you say your kind of view on christianity uh, your approach to faith has changed since you probably first made a commitment as a as a young man as a child even in your mother's church oh wow that's a good question (laughs) i I would say i could answer it quite simply i was brought up to see god and faith as something to be afraid of. Really? So you became a Christian because you feared hell. Okay. And that was part of the Pentecostal fire and brimstone preaching tradition. Mm-hmm. People mm-hmm. who from Jamaica or the Caribbean uh, and around uh, about my age group in the 40s or 50s will understand that, that tradition <laughs> where we heard fire and brimstone preaching and thought, my goodness, God could strike us down at any moment. And that's it. Yeah. Won't even get to see Coventry win the FA Cup, you know, so I better, I better get on the right side of the track. So I think there was a lot of fear, yeah. uh, to be quite honest, and fear of death, fear of hell, fear of God. Obviously, having 
grown up in the church, having traveled, having studied Christian theology and teaching it, I would say I'm juxtaposed to that now where I see God much more as a God of love and justice and those Mm. two sides of God's being being fundamental to um, my own worship experience my own devotional experience and also I would say seeing God as being much more inclusive Mm. the faith that I had of the early days was very exclusive you had to be saved sanctified to make sure you're going to heaven and you had to belong to our church if you didn't belong to our denomination you weren't going to get there all these other christians we didn't know what they were doing because they were they, they worship in the same place that we did so it's very yeah, narrow sure. i think i'm much more inclusive now mm. not just in terms of various denominations but and this may upset a few people but even in terms of religious traditions mm. i'm an inclusivist in the sense that I believe that there are many pathways to God. Mm. I just can't believe that an all-powerful, loving God would be crazy enough to say there's only one narrow tradition over a particular period of human history by which people can know God. And I think that broadness is affirmed within the biblical tradition, traditions of Melchizedek in the Old Testament, where we have people who know about God who we don't necessarily know Mm. are part of the story. And similarly, there are teachings in the New Testament which suggest that the church and faith is much broader than we think. So I'm much more inclusive in that sense, but I'm also much more committed to justice. I think that justice is at the heart of God and to be committed to God is to struggle for justice in this world. I think that is the signature for me of being Christian. Do, do you find having gone on that journey, you're both obviously still very much your roots and your identity is in the black church community that you grew up in and you continue to write about and, and do theology uh, alongside. But at the same time, I can imagine some in that church kind of wonder, hey, where's Robert gone? He's kind of he's taken on all these new ideas and, and gone in different directions. So how, how do you kind of work out that balance of, of where you've come from and where you are now? I hope so. I hope they've thought that because if not, I wouldn't have grown. I think, I think that, I think that life and faith is about growth, change and challenge. And I think that if you're in the same place for 30 years, it's problematic in mm. terms of your thinking and, and your growth because the world is changing around you. Um, ultimately, you have to be true to what yourself and what you believe mm. and what you believe you are being called to do. And, and you, you run with that because God can only call you, can't call your impersonation of somebody else. So I've always tried to stay true to what I believe and what I feel is central to my understanding of faith. That doesn't mean that you act in isolation or are not connected to other people and don't take on board what other members of your church say or family mm. members say. I do. That, that's part of the that's really important part of being mm. in community is listening and hearing other people. But I'm, I'm not too fussed about what people think or say. I'm more concerned about if I can get it right in terms yeah. of what I'm being called to do. That's more important to me. And ultimately, the fruit is what you measure people by. And I'd like to think that the projects I've been involved with in in prisons, working with young people at risk, Mm. working with students, hard-to-reach students from BME communities, being involved in political campaigns around world poverty, around reparations for slavery, and seeing those projects thrive and bear fruit would be evidence that it's not all too bad and that there is um, (laughs) divine presence and blessing in this work. Mm. Just quickly as we conclude, um, if um, somebody is inspired, maybe a young person, to uh, go on the journey you've been on, um, it's not too late for them to be taught by Robert Beckford. You actually are, you've got some courses uh, coming up, I believe, at Canterbury Christchurch University. That's right. That's right. Although my main base is at Canterbury, I also teach in London. So mm. if people are interested in studying theology over two days a week for a full degree in theology over three years they can join us at Christ College in Woolwich we're actually running taster events on the 7th and 14th of May uh, for anybody who's interested in studying Christian theology you don't need to have A levels we are willing to look at students who have lots of life experience mature students as well as young people with a lot of energy and commitment to learning and we've structured a course that Um, begins uh, it makes its starting point for people who don't have traditional academic skills and we bring them up to standard and over three years take them towards a BA in theology so that's a satellite project Mm. uh, sponsored by Canterbury Christchurch University for people who are interested in studying studying theology basically what we realized was that there's a lot of people who want to study but they 
they've got jobs they've got yeah, ministries absolutely. And to fit it yeah, all in yeah. so we teach all of our courses all day Friday all day Saturday and most of our materials like most universities are online so people can go online yeah. and catch up on reading that way so do try and join us te- uh, t- uh, 10 till 12 o'clock on the 7th and 14th at Wool- uh, Christ College in Woolwich. in Woolwich. You can find it on the uh, on the internet if you just look at Christ College Woolwich or if you Google me, Robert Beckford, you'll see details that eventually come up off those taster courses as well. Fantastic. Well, all the very best for that and uh, all the very best as you continue your journey, Robert. It's been really great having you with me on the profile today. The pleasure has been mine. Thank you. Well, you can find this interview with Robert Beckford in the latest edition of Premier Christianity magazine, the May 2017 edition, or go to our website and ask for a free sample copy of the mag, premierchristianity.com slash free sample. I've been Justin Briley, the senior editor of the magazine, on the profile in the first half of today's programme with Robert Beckford. But coming up next, we're going to be hearing a conversation between the deputy editor, Sam Hales, and Nick Spencer, author of a new book on Christianity and politics, very relevant to the upcoming general election. That's coming up next here on The Profile. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. This programme is brought to you in association with the magazine that I write for and help edit. It's Premier Christianity. And if you'd like a free sample copy of the latest issue, you can head to our website, which is premierchristianity.com. You'll find loads of blogs and articles about all sorts of stuff that's going on in the news from a Christian perspective. And if you add a forward slash free sample to that web link, so that's premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample, you can get a free copy of the print issue. But today, here on The Profile, I'm speaking to Nick Spencer. He is the research director at Theos, which is a Christian think tank. Nick, welcome to the programme. Hello there. Great to have you in the studio with us today. You work for Theos, which is a a Christian think tank, um, which believes you can't understand the modern world without understanding religion. And linked to that, you've just brought out this new book. It's called The Mighty and the Almighty, How Political Leaders Do God, which is this really interesting look at how different political leaders, um, what they think about faith and religion. So where did that idea idea for this book come from? It started a few years ago actually with a conversation we were having with some academics at Lancaster University and um, an exploration of whether there had been anything written about the Christian faith of political leaders Um, and it emerged that surprisingly little in some countries, notably the US of course where faith is a very big deal, there had been some, it had been odds and ends in the UK but not a great deal so we thought it would be interesting to collect and collate a, a series of essays we've reached 24 in the end looking at the um, the Christian faith of global political leaders so this is prime ministers presidents chancellors over the last 40 years or so it's really interesting it follows of course that really famous comment now of we don't do God which was uh, a few years ago um, which I think Alistair Campbell said about Tony Blair he did I mean, it's a fascinating comment really he wasn't making a, a statement ex cathedra as it were it wasn't a principal statement of we do not engage in religious speculation he was actually closing down a particular interview but for various reasons partly because in actual fact when he was in office Blair didn't do God it became totemic really and now serves as you know, the headline number of articles and books and so on and so forth about our attitude to religious faith in politics I don't actually think it's accurate mm. as it happens it might have been right for Blair but not really for other leaders. But you, you do sometimes hear people say that, you know, in polite conversation around the dinner table, you don't talk about religion and you don't talk about politics and, and the two certainly shouldn't meet. You... I know, which is why I don't talk about my work at dinner parties. <laughs> <laughs> why is that? Why is there an aversion to speaking about arguably two of the most important things in society today? It's a very good question. I think the key word in that is important. Important means people have strongly held views. They have differing views. And I think if you wish to maintain the harmony of your Saturday night dinner party, you don't tend to invite in strongly held views that are potentially divisive about very important issues. It can be a mistake. If these things matter, you need to talk about them. But perhaps there's a time and a place. Sure. Well, I want to drill down a bit more into into your life. Here on the profile, we always ask people about their life growing up and, and ask for a bit of their testimony. So do you want to tell me a bit about um, what early life was like for you? Yeah, I'm, I'm an Essex boy at heart and I live in Surrey now but um, my heart I think resides somewhere in somewhere in Essex 
Um, I was brought up in a, actually a thoroughly um, non-Christian household. Neither mum or dad were or are believers. Um, and um, I have one brother, David, and uh, I, uh, I went to school. It's a forest school in, um, in East London. And then I went off to read um, history and English at, at university. At what point then did you encounter Christianity? Through poetry. Really? Is the, is How the, interesting. Is, is, the, uh, is the probably honest answer. Well, that's part of the answer. I read, as I said, history and, and English, and part of that involved reading a number of poets for whom Christianity was very seriously. It actually okay. began before I went off to university. I had a particularly brilliant, inspirational English teacher from my last four years at school, and he introduced me to a number of poets whom I wouldn't have given the time of day to beforehand. And these were poets of faith, like George Herbert or John Donne, or poets of doubts like Matthew Arnold or um, Clough or supremely for me T.S. Eliot and um, reading them made me realise there's something serious here, something that really mattered and so that kind of piqued my interest. At the same time I had a very good friend who um, was losing his Christian faith at the time but the very fact that his loss mattered so much to him made me realise that there was something again worth taking into consideration here and then I was helped as well by the fact that um, as, a, as a historian I became fascinated by the historicity of the New Testament and it was very much very much more reliable than I had imagined beforehand so it was a kind of a combination of different factors that wow. gradually it was an Emmaus-like experience mm. rather than anything Damascene. It, it sounds like um, an amazing combination of sort of head and heart in, in terms of the poetry being perhaps a more heart level thing but then as you say the historicity of the New Testament that being a kind of um, I don't know, more academic pursuit, if you like. I think so, yes. I mean, obviously, head and heart are kind of, you know, you can understand them in, in, in different ways. And um, one of the tasks of studying literature is to take a head approach to, 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 to poetry. But nonetheless, I think your point stands in that you could have, for example, shown me the historical reliability of the New Testament without any of these other contextual elements in my life and I might have raised an eyebrow mm. but I probably wouldn't necessarily have been motivated to change a life mm. yeah sure so uh, from that uh, conversion experience what kind of age was that um, so I was baptised when I was when I was 20 um, 20 years old I think 1994 so I was baptised when I was 20 that's right. right and plain sailing since then um, is Christian life never really plain <laughs> sailing is it that's the correct answer I think um, <laughs> It made a huge difference, in as far as you can tell. You know, counterfactuals are always always difficult. Um, I don't pray anything like as much as I should, and I have um, kind of turbulent relationships both with with scripture and prayer, and indeed with theological reflection, which I think is as it should be. Mm. Really, I think you know, if you're ever kind of settled in your faith, in the sense that you don't still have nagging questions or problems. Um, or doubts, you know, faith and doubt being you know two sides of the same coin. I suspect you know the, your faith maybe isn't as live as it uh, as it might be. So certainly not plain sailing, but life enhancing mm. without a doubt. Yeah, and as I say, you're now at, at Theos, which is a Christian think tank. I imagine some people might think, what is a think tank, let alone a Christian one? Mm. When we were launched back in November 2006, one extremely witty new atheist said, "Christian think tank? Surely that's a." contradiction in terms <laughs> which was um, which was very funny but um it, it we engage in the debate around the presence of religion in general but christianity specifically in contemporary public life uh, the focus on the uk we come um from uh, an ecumenical orthodox position so we will draw on you know, scripture tradition reason catholic social thoughts um a, a, as well we're not representative of any particular denomination or any particular churchmanship. We seek through theological reflection but also empirical research to be an intelligent, well-reasoned, hopefully even winsome mm. Christian voice in contemporary public life. So what does that look like for you on a sort of daily basis? What does uh, working at Theos mean for you? Well... I'd like to say now it's one massive long academic seminar in which we <laughs> wrestle with deeply held theological um, views and conundrums. It isn't like that. And inevitably, there's yeah, a significant element of it invariably devolves into trying to raise money. <laughs> I think most jobs eventually devolve into trying to raise money. Um, we are you know, very generously funded by the Bible Society um, covering some of our salaries but for others and for all our research all our public activity all our projects and publications we need to raise money ourselves which means persuading potential funders that you know, 
what we're doing is important. So there is a brutal element of that. Um, but also, I suppose the, the part of the job that I enjoy most as research director is um, partly shaping and editing and seeing, overviewing our research programme, but then also producing, writing, researching our reports, books, sure. essays, blogs, <coughs> long reads. Yeah. And talking of books, um, I wanted to mention one of your previous titles, The Evolution of the West, which was published by SBCK. Very well-received book. And you argued that Christianity has shaped our values in the West. So our ethics, our sense of dignity, human rights, democracy, all of these things have Christian underpinnings. That's quite a claim, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's not a popular one. We or at least some people at least, um, like to think that all the um, virtues we theoretically practice and the values we theoretically hold dear in the modern West came into life fully formed sometime during the Enlightenment and we can trace our intellectual lineage back to Voltaire and Hume and Kant but no further because before then it was just barbarity and crusades. It's nonsense it's also equally untrue to say absolutely everything we have today we owe directly through a lineage to Christianity and there was never any doubt about it and so on and so forth. That's simply not true. There's a, yes, a chapter in the book about democracy and it shows that you know if you were to put a bet on the sentiments coming out of the lips, coming out of the mouth of a of an English bishop in the early 19th century, it would have been resolutely anti-democratic. So we shouldn't airbrush history here. But nonetheless, in certain absolutely key foundational aspects such as human worth and dignity, the rule of law, the accountability and limitedness of political authority, the legitimacy of scientific research, scientific work, those kind of things are deeply rooted in a Christian worldview. Do you think that's something that the average Christian needs to understand and, and take to heart? I mean, I imagine you do because you've wrote a book around it, but I just wonder how that works practically for, for someone who perhaps, you know, does it have implications for apologetics, for sharing our faith, that actually we should stand up for ourselves a bit more and that Christianity has contributed more to society than many may think? I think it does. I would say that I didn't write the book for apologetic purposes. I'm delighted for it to be used for apologetic purposes. I, I, I wrote it because, you know, I like history and history is important. I think there is a link there, though. So you could say, OK, fine, that was then, but this is now. Um, I don't think you can make that argument for two reasons. One, for the well-tried and tested Orwellian reason that he who controls the past controls the present and he who controls the present controls the future. So if you do believe that all our modern values, or our admirable modern values, are rooted only in the 18th century, it becomes easier to write Christianity out of the future script if you've already written it out of the past script. So that's one reason why it's important and can be used apologetically. I think the second reason is that you are making a big leap of faith if you say, OK, I acknowledge that Christianity was foundational in the formation of these values but we don't need it anymore we're like the toddler who used a kind of a little walking frame to get them walking and now we're able to walk and we don't need the kind of the the infrastructure the theological infrastructure to justify it to, to to sustain all these different values well i don't think so and i think this is where actually the christian doctrine of sin comes in i suspect that we are inclined to slide away from a number of these important political and public values and that deep down, not just at a historical level, but at a philosophical level, we need a serious Christian commitment to sustain some of these values. Mm. Uh, are they are they under threat in the sense that you know people might sometimes say religion is being squeezed out of public life? Is that the sort of position that you take? It's not being um, formally squeezed out of public life, but there is a kind of an informal pressure against public manifestation of religion. Um, in some quarters, it, it's very messy at the moment. I think it's probably fair to say. And you will get a number of people, either because they're thoroughly unfamiliar with Christianity or because they're indifferent to it or some because they're hostile to it, and you can expand that to faith generally, who would favour some kind of hard secularism in which um, Christian values, voices, views are excluded from public life. You'll get many others, many other liberals, who are much more, much more genuinely tolerant. So there is this... It's a question of eternal vigilance, really. I think we pay a lot of lip service to human dignity, human rights, human equality, and I think most of the time we mean it. 
but it's very easy to mean it with your lips and not practice it with your heart, mm. um, both politically and, and, and as a culture. It's very easy to hate. And that's why the advice, the commands in the gospel are so important and counterintuitive. Rule of law, we absolutely take for granted. Well, it's not the case at all. I'm not for a second suggesting that we're about to slide into a kind of anarchistic or totalitarian state by any means. But governments are always gently trying to kind of press the limits of, 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 of rule of law because it's a bit of a pain really right. so there's always these, these 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 elements where you don't need to be apocalyptic about them but you do need to be vigilant mm. well if you just joined us here on Prem and Christian Radio I'm speaking to Nick Spencer the research director at Theos a Christian think tank and Nick is also the author of a new book The Mighty and the Almighty How Political Leaders Do God it's this fascinating look at uh, the faith of various political leaders now Nick we can't talk about uh, faith and politics and political leaders without mentioning a particular leader who has risen to prominence on the other side of the pond, as they put it, that is, of course, Donald Trump. What on earth are we to make of the faith of Donald Trump? Well, I did write the chapter on Donald Trump. Um, I had actually written the chapter on Hillary Clinton in misguided faith. Um, <laughs> you really thought she, you thought she'd win? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, I did wake up on the next morning in a state of considerable shock. Um, Donald Trump is not noted um, for his piety um, and it is interesting perhaps one of the most depressing things about the um, spectacle last year was less Donald Trump and more the way that many Christians who had during the primaries distanced themselves from him preferring other Republican candidates slowly gravitating to him and managing to swallow or disguise their distaste um, there were some um, on against that's very powerful um, deeply um, kind of theologically and biblically sophisticated reposts but that was not an encouraging spectacle Trump himself was he, he, he went to church um, and he I think you get a slight window on, on, on his soul as it were knowing that he went to a church which was run at the time by a pastor called Norman Vincent Peale Norman Vincent Peale is probably best known today if at all is the author of a book called The Power of Positive Thinking which was a New York Times bestseller for three years or something like that which was a kind of spiritual self-help as it were and I think that either influenced Trump or at least resonated with who he was and what he believed and um, I suspect that there is something in that so Donald Trump's Christianity such as it is it was kind of rediscovered on the campaign trail to some extent is have to say pretty shallow it's quite self-helpish and also it seems quite nationalistic in the sense that there is a uh, an almost salvific tone to the way he talks about the nation now that comes with the territory from American presidents in, in, in many ways a city on a hill and all, and all that but I think Trump's rhetoric is you know just a notch up Mm. from that of previous presidents so that that's how I would summarise it pretty mm. pretty paper thin quite um, self-helpish and quite what extremely patriotic to the point of nationalistic mm. yes it, it does remind me slightly again going back to Tim Farron he said very recently that in America it's very kind of normal for politicians to have a faith and it's kind of encouraged uh, but Tim Farron said that in the UK you almost have to pretend not to have a faith was that a fair comment a comparison between our two countries yeah it's not too far off the mark I would have to say that neither situation is particularly healthy. So the need to genuflect before the altar, so to speak, in, in, in the US is problematic because you've got to fake it. Um, and because other politicians who may not have Christian beliefs find their um, you know their political careers potentially um, shortcut. Although Bernie Sanders was an interesting example there who you know was, was bucking that trend. Um, in the UK, I, I think there are quite a few Christian believing politicians but the problem is that I think there is well let's be charitable a loss of Christian vocabulary familiarity which means if they talk about their faiths about prayer famously you know Blair being asked about prayer by Paxman or about divine judgment that was another one of, 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 of Blair's 
or about sin, in Tim Farron's case, they're such alien ideas that they're seen to be somehow subverting the normal course of politics as opposed to enriching them or broadening them or, or, or whatever else. So it gets to the stage that you don't talk about it, not because you're formally banned from talking about it, this isn't a hard secular state, but because you will be greeted with incredulity or incomprehension in such a way as becomes a vote loser. And that's problematic as well because it, it makes for a more dishonest and also, I think, a slightly narrower and less rich political debate. When uh, Steve Clifford from the Evangelical Alliance sat in that chair across from me a, a few weeks ago, he said something similar about Christians having to relearn the language of the kind of culture that we live in. And, and he was really suggesting that a number of us as, as Christians, we don't quite know how to speak to an increasingly secular society. You mentioned some of the words like sin. Is there need for a, almost a vocabulary change from Christians? Do we need to kind of meet people in the middle and, and change the way we, we speak about things? Or, or should we just be fighting for recovery and the understanding of, of these terms and what they mean? It's a really good question. I think there's a third option there. So taking those first two options, continue speaking in Christianese, if you like, to a secular culture is going to be problematic for all the obvious reasons. But no less problematic is the idea that you change your language. Now, of course you do that, and Christians have done that all through, all through the years. But changing language also has implications of changing thought and changing worldview. So you've got to be very careful before you do it. You do used the language of accommodation theologians talk about it, but you do it carefully the third option is continuing to bring it being willing to speak in uh, an authentic christian vocabulary but legitimizing that speech through action so we're 10 years old at theos i recently published a report called doing good a future for christianity in the 21st century which looks at how christianity is going to develop and progress in the 21st century and one of the key arguments there was that one of the significant trends and changes we're seeing is a growth in what the report calls Christian social liturgy. Um, it's a kind of Christian social action, but, but slightly different. Now, the argument is that an actual, in actual fact, the lingua franca, the common language for the 21st century, is less going to be language and more going to be action because we are living in an increasingly plural society and it's not Christians, just Christians who aren't being heard because our public discourse is somewhat fractured. So the challenge for Christians is actually to continue, obviously, with a Christian worldview and even with Christian language, but to show that this is what language of sin or judgment or prayer or pastoral support or whatever it else looks like in practice. So as it were, you help people understand Christian language and Christian vocabulary by viewing it through the lens of Christian love in practice. Well, that's a great place to leave it. Unfortunately, we're out of time. But Nick Spencer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I do hope you enjoyed both those interviews with Professor Robert Beckford, speaking earlier to Justin Briley, and just now my interview with Nick Spencer from the Theos Think Tank. Final reminder that you can, of course, request a free sample copy of Premier Christianity magazine. It's the magazine that I write for and help edit, and it sponsors this programme. If you'd like to do that, just go ahead to our website. It's premierchristianity.com. Add a forward slash free sample to that web link and you'll be able to get a copy of the latest issue. Also, if you're listening to this on Premier Christian Radio, this program is now available as a podcast. You can access past shows that way and also keep up to date if you subscribe with all the exciting interviews we've got coming up in the weeks to come. But now, here on Premier Christian Radio, it's time to say goodbye and I'll leave you with Dave Rose, who's coming up next with Premier Playback.